Today's reading is going to come from the Gospel of Luke. I invite you to turn over there to the 23rd chapter with me today. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures with you, you can find a pew Bible there in front of you. Grab one of those and the page numbers on the screen. We're starting verse 33 of chapter 23 of the Gospel of Luke. It begins like this. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine and vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourselves and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you are under the same sentence, We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. But the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people had gathered to witness this sight, saw what took place, they beat the breasts and went away. But all Those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. You may have noticed when you came in that we do have our Lord's Supper table here set and prepared for us, which means, of course, we're taking the Lord's Supper today. It also means we don't have kingdom kids today, so be aware of that, please. We will resume that ministry next week. I want to make one quick announcement before we get into what God has for us in Luke today. Uh, Also in your bulletin, you'll see that we are hosting a exploring membership class on Sunday, May 21st. It's going to be at 945. Okay. So if you're wanting to learn more about membership in our church or just get to know more about our church in general, this is a great opportunity to do that. Coming to the class doesn't commit you to anything. It just is an opportunity for us to visit and to share with you a little bit about FBC Kennedy, okay? So if that interests you, just check the box on your connection card and make sure you fill out a little bit of information so that we know how to get in touch with you so that we can keep you in the loop on that upcoming uh, Exploring Membership class. That is during our normal Sunday morning small group Bible study time. So if you have kiddos or if you have students uh, in junior high, high school, we do have nursery children's Bible study, and student Bible study during that time. So they have somewhere to go, and they have a chance to study God's Word. So we invite you to take, take a look at that and participate in that, and we would love to have you uh, join us for that Exploring Membership on the 21st of May. Okay, now let's pause and pray 
and dig into God's word together. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the scriptures and what they teach us. How you instruct us through the Bible, but it's so much more than just instructions. It's your heart expressed to us about who you are, about who we are, about what you intend to do in this world, what you have done and and what you want to do in and through us. So, Father, we come to your word today in this uh, incredible moment in Jesus' life at the very end. And we want to hear what he has to say. And I pray that these words of his spoken to us from the cross, God, we would be listening, attentive to what you have to say, that we would experience your spirit leading us to one of these phrases, one of these sentences, one of these messages that Jesus shares with us in the midst of his excruciating pain, that that we would hear you speaking to us through him as recorded in Scripture. This is what we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, I got a little ambitious with you guys today, all right? Uh, I want to try to share with you what I call a buffet sermon, uh, which I don't do very often. It means that I'm going to share with you several different messages, and I'm hoping that you will find within each one uh, something that God wants to impress upon your heart. Now, the reason we're doing this is because Jesus has seven messages for us from the cross. There's seven last words of Jesus that he speaks as he is literally hanging on the cross just hours before his death and up to his death. I I picked Luke because in Luke we read three of those sentences, but we're going to kind of journey through uh, Matthew, Luke, and John and see what Jesus has to say. Not Mark doesn't record Jesus's words, so we're not taking a look at Mark. But the other three, we're going to be kind of in and out of these. So there is seven. So that means you're going to hear seven sermons today. And I know what you're thinking. Okay, there's no kingdom, kids. We're taking Lord's Supper at the end. He better go fast. And I promise you, I'm going to try. All right. So just hang with me, but we're going to do our best. So probably the most challenging of these seven things that Jesus says comes from Matthew 27, 46. Uh, You're welcome to turn over there with me, but I'm going to read it to you. It's pretty short. It says that about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. Now, this this cry from Jesus is spoken in Aramaic, okay, which was one of the languages of Jesus's day. And it was so memorable spoken in Aramaic that it's recorded in Aramaic. So it sounds like this. Eloi, Eloi, Lima, Shabachthani. Now, I don't know Aramaic. I don't really know Greek or Hebrew either. I know, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm preaching from English, y'all. Just like, like, just like the rest of us, I got to read this in English. But, but what that means, what that translates is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is, I think, by far the most troubling sentence that Jesus speaks from the cross. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around that here is Jesus, who we believe is God in the flesh, somehow saying that God, his Father, has abandoned him in this moment, in the greatest moment of his need. In the most challenging moment of his life, near the end, he is saying these hard words that to our ears, I think, are challenging. What we, off, what we also know is that Jesus is actually quoting a psalm here in Matthew, here in Matthew 27, 46. And the psalm is Psalm 22.1. I want to read just a little bit to you from Psalm 21. I'm not, Psalm 22. I'm not going to read all of it. 
The first verse is the verse that Jesus quotes in part. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. Uh, Jesus is, is speaking this verse and often I've heard it said and seen it as I've researched and studied this section of scripture. That when anyone quotes a portion of the psalm, they also intend for you to understand the setting of the entire psalm. So in other words, we don't want to stop at verse 1 and actually stop at the first half of verse 1. We want to understand the context of the whole chapter, Psalm 22, of which we don't have time to walk through. But if we just zoom in on a couple places, we read an incredible description of what's actually taking place in Jesus' life up to this moment. In these moments of his anguish, we read what takes place, and this is written hundreds of years later, earlier. In verse 7 of Psalm 22, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Does that sound familiar? It should. We just read it out of Luke, right? Verse 16 of Psalm 22, we read, dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. This is Psalm 22. This is written hundreds of years before Jesus is on the cross. This is the entirety of the psalm I think Jesus wants us to have in mind. Verse 17, all my bones are in display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. This sounds familiar, yes? This is what's taking place in Jesus' life at the end. Psalm twenty two twenty four. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry from help. Now we see a turn in the psalm. What seems all gloom and doom when you just read the first part of verse 1, now we see some light start breaking in. The psalmist is saying, God hasn't forgotten me. God is not despising me or scorning me. God has not hidden his face from me. God has listened to my cry for help. And because he has, listen to how the psalm ends. Verse 30, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. Now think about that. We're here talking about Jesus. We are those future generations talking about the Lord. That Psalm 22 prophesied. We are a part of the fulfillment of that prophecy as we hear about Jesus right here and now. Verse 31, they will proclaim his righteousness and declare to a people yet unborn, he has done it. My first sermon, to share with you the words of Jesus. There are times where it feels like God has forsaken us. At the very least, there are times where we wonder, where is God? I'm asking for help. He's not showing up. I'm in great need. He has not provided for my needs. There are moments where we're going to feel that way. And I don't think that understanding the whole of Psalm 22 should take away from us our understanding of the sting of the cross. That Jesus truly does feel the entirety of the psalm, including the forsakenness, as well as the hope and the future plans that God had for him. But I totally believe that he also experienced this forsakenness. And that you and I, at some point in our lives, are going to feel that forsakenness as well. And what do we do with that? We share it with the Lord. 
we open ourselves up to him. We let him know how we feel, but we also get a bigger picture of what God is doing. When it doesn't seem like God is showing up on our lot in our lives, we remind ourselves that in the end, there is a great victory that he will earn on our behalf, that God is at work for his glory and for our good when we can see it and when we cannot see it. That's sermon number one. Maybe that applies to you. Sermon number two comes from Luke chapter 23, the first part of verse 34, which we just read. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Now, Jesus says this. This is a prayer. He is praying this as he's being crucified. He is praying this prayer for his executioners. This is a pretty stunning statement that he would say this. Now, they did know what they were doing and that they were crucifying someone that they thought was a criminal. You remember they got the plaque over the cross? That plaque was a, was a statement of what the accused was accused of. That this guy, Jesus, says he's the king of the Jews. And the king of the Jews is not Jesus. It's the Roman king that the Roman emperor has placed over this area of the world. And so you can't have these competing claims of kingship. And so Jesus is going to the cross because he has claimed to be king of the Jews. Now, that's that's the Romans outlook. The Jews had a very different reason for sending Jesus to the cross. But that was the Romans desire to crucify him was because he had these claims to be king when there was already a king on the throne. So Jesus is praying that these Roman executions would be forgiven because truly they did not understand they were crucifying the Messiah, the king of kings. God's one and only son, the savior of the world. They did not understand that. They understood they were crucifying someone with the charge that they were being called or or were taking on the mantle of king when they were not in the Romans view of things. And Jesus asks the father to forgive them. Jesus has mercy and grace for those who are killing him. Now, let's be honest. Most of us are not going to be in that position in life. I hope not. Uh, and if we're not, I think we're pretty fortunate that, that we've never had to experience this kind, of, this kind of suffering. But people have pierced us, have they not? Are there not people in your life and in mine that have wounded us, that have hurt us? And, it, and it's hard, isn't it? It would be hard to do what Jesus did. Except to know that as Jesus is forgiving the unforgivable in these Roman soldiers, as he's on the cross, he is earning forgiveness for us. That we, along with those Roman executioners and the Jews that stood behind that whole uh, kangaroo court and all of that stuff, is our sin. Jesus is on the cross because of us. And so when we get that picture, I think it helps us because we have been pierced. We have been wounded. We have been hurt. And God calls us to forgive those who have hurt us. In fact, Colossians 3.13 tells us, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. How did Jesus forgive you at great cost? It cost him his life. And it's going to cost you something to forgive. It's painful to forgive. It's hard to forgive. But Jesus forgave the unforgivable in you and in me. 
And he invites, calls, commands us to do the same. However hard it is, he will help us. Sermon number three. See, I told you, we're trying to move fast. I'm trying to, I'm trying to get there, all right? Sermon number three, sticking in Luke chapter 23, just a little bit further down the road in verse 43. Luke 23, 43, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. If you remember, we read this portion, so you know the story. There's criminals on the left and right of him. Uh, Roman execution was not unique to Jesus. This is what Rome did to anyone who broke Roman law severely enough that they want to set an example for everybody else. And this was a public execution. It was a slow execution. It could take anywhere from six hours to four days hanging on the cross to die. Now for Jesus, it was on the short end of that. It only took him about six hours. Most likely because he was beaten so badly before he went to the cross that he was near the end of his life anyways. But as he's hanging there, you have these two figures, these two criminals on either side. And one of them is, is sneering at Jesus and, and, and mocking him. And the other says, now wait a second, we should be here. He shouldn't. He doesn't deserve to be here. I don't know what this guy knew about Jesus, but he knew some things were right. He knew some things true. I don't know that he had the whole picture, but he knew enough. Enough to know that this man who is dying is going to enter into a kingdom and he wanted to be a part of it and asked to be a part of it. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. An amazing and incredible statement. Because I look at that and say, well, that guy doesn't deserve it. He didn't go to church once. He didn't serve in the synagogue under the banner of Jesus once. He didn't give his tithe in the name of Jesus. Look at all the things he didn't do. He doesn't deserve to be in the paradise that I'm going to. Because look at what all I've done. And see, this is how the world thinks about God and religion. God has a standard. We've got to meet it. If we don't meet it, we've got to make up the distance. This is the way the world understands God and religion. This is not Christianity. Christianity is fundamentally, totally, and completely unfair. That's what it is. It's totally and completely unfair. God gives you and I what we don't deserve. And Jesus takes for us what he doesn't deserve. And Jesus is saying, as God in the flesh, I can grant forgiveness. I can grant access to the kingdom. It's his prerogative. He gets to choose who will be saved. And when he invites us, and I believe he invites every person in some way, at some time, he is extending the invitation to each of us. We have to decide will we reach out for that gift or not. And this man reached out and received the gift that Jesus offered. Have you? Have you reached out and received the gift that Jesus offered? That's what grace means. It literally means gratis gift, unmerited favor, something you didn't deserve, which is how all gifts are presented, right? If someone presents you with a gift and says, yeah, but I I know it's your birthday, but I really need you to mow the lawn first. I really need you to do the dishes first. You know, I've been asking you to fix this in the house and you can get that gift, but you got to do this first. Now that ceases to be a gift, doesn't it? Now you're in the territory of wages. Now you're earning something. 
That's not a gift. A gift is freely given to you, yet you still have to reach out and take it. You still have to receive it and unpack it and enjoy it. That's your part to play. That's not meriting it, is it? By you receiving the gift and opening the gift and enjoying the gift. Is that you earning the gift? No. That's you responding to the gift giver. And Jesus is responding to this person who wants the gift. And he says, here it is. It's yours in paradise. You and me. Real soon. Can you say that? Do you know that? Do you know paradise is in front of you? When you pass from this earth to the next? If you don't, I hope you do. Because what you see in this criminal is that, man... It doesn't take much, right? This criminal did not, did not have to clean up his life, did not have to have some kind of religious record to show this king of kings that he should be granted access to paradise. He simply had to believe. And that's what it takes for you and me. We just simply have to believe Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus did what we read in scriptures that it said he did. And Jesus can grant for you and I what Jesus promises he can grant, which is forgiveness of sin, eternal life, righteousness in the eyes of God, if we'll receive it. Fourth sermon. Continuing in Luke 23. First part of verse 46. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Again, Jesus is quoting, we think, from Psalms, Psalm 31.5. Which says exactly that. Into your hands I commit my spirit. First part of Psalm 31 verse 5. And what we see taking place here in Jesus' life is that Jesus is not on the cross involuntarily. In fact, he does not even lose his life on someone else's accord. He is choosing to give his life. He is choosing to die for us. He would say in John 10, 18, John chapter 10, verse 18, no one takes it from me. Speaking of his life, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. So Jesus here is not a victim. He is a willing participant, participant in his own death. Why? To grant us life and life eternal. Now, when we read that, let's be honest. Jesus got to choose that. We do not get to choose. At least we should not. We don't get to plan that last breath that we will take. We don't know when that's going to happen. And yet we can worry a lot about it, can't we? Some of y'all know, you know, I had a heart attack a while back. So I've thought a lot about death. My own is very unpleasant. Uh, I'd say I don't recommend it, but there's actually something good about thinking about your own death. It made me feel so powerless. I think God wanted me to feel that. It made me feel like I lacked control over my own destiny. I think God wanted me to feel that. Because, you know, I like to be in control. I like to be in charge. I like to have a plan. I like to execute that plan. I like to line up the ducks. You know, I, that, that's my personality. I bet it's some of yours. I did not like that feeling that this is beyond me. And I had to settle into this truth that God decides. Jesus decided 
God decides. Job had seen a lot of death as well. In some ways he wished for his own. And he said this in Job 14.5, A person's days are determined. By them? No. By someone else? No. You, God, have decreed the number of his months and have set limits he cannot exceed. Psalm 139.16 says, Your eyes saw my unformed body, all the days ordained for me, written in your book, before one of them came to be. What is that telling us? Telling us your life is in God's hands. Every minute. And you can worry about when that day is going to come. You can fret. You can have all sorts of fears. But there is something comforting knowing. I will not pass from this life to the next until God is done with me. Until he calls me home. I'm on his timeline, not my own. Sermon number five. This is, uh, we're going to shift gears to John. Gospel of John, 19th chapter. Jesus is on the cross. He, while almost everyone has abandoned him, there is a few holdovers. And wouldn't you know, one of them is mom. Of course, mom would be there. His, his biological mother, Mary, is there at the moment of his crucifixion and death. But before Jesus gives up his spirit, he says these things to his mother, who's standing there next to the writer of the Gospel of John, John the Apostle John. John refers to himself as he writes the Gospel of John as the one whom Jesus loves. And John records what took place on the cross when Jesus says to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Now, woman, was that, sometimes we use that as a derogatory term. You know, you know, just our tone. Y'all know what I mean. You use that particular tone with the word woman, you're in trouble. Don't do that. It's a bad idea, right? This has no negative connotation whatsoever. So just kind of get that out of your mind. Woman, here is your son. This is Jesus saying this. And to the disciple, here is your mother. Jesus is saying to his mother and to John, the disciple whom he loved... I am thinking of you in my most excruciating moments. I care for you. I, I want to make sure my mother is taken care of. And I want to make sure my friend knows that I trust him enough to do the most important job that he could leave behind on earth to care for his mother. I don't know if it's the most important job, but it's, like, it's got to be a big one, at least. Because you've got the whole mission of Jesus. Maybe that's a big, I don't know. I shouldn't have said it that way, but you get what I'm saying. This is super important. He wants someone to look after and care for his mother. And he wants John to know, I trust you to do the job. In his most excruciating and painful moment, not just physically, but spiritually, emotionally, relationally, every way you can imagine, Jesus is in agony. And who is he thinking about? Let me tell you, if I stub my toe in the middle of the night, I will scream. And I will wake everybody up. And I don't care because my toe hurts, y'all. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, when I'm in pain, I'm not thinking about others. When I'm in pain, when I'm in agony, I'm thinking about me. But not Jesus. Jesus is thinking about others. And I got to tell you, I think that's a better way. That you and I are going to go through some hard things. And it can, it can cause us to get very inward focused in the midst of our challenges. 
But what, a, what if instead of becoming inward focused, what if we resisted that urge to focus on ourselves in the midst of our pain and suffering and we chose to focus on others as Jesus did? Who is near you, around you, whom you can love in the name of Jesus, even if you are suffering in his name? Who? Sixth sermon. This is a short one. Just a couple verses beyond what we just read. John 19, the second half of verse 28, we read the words of Jesus. I am thirsty. This is Jesus' humanity on display. It's not super clear what they gave Jesus, whether because there's two kind of competing thoughts. One is that they would have given him something to drink that would have deadened the pain. Maybe that's what's taking place. One is that they would have given him something to drink that would have quenched his thirst and prolonged his life. It's not terribly clear what kind of drink he is drinking at this moment. And I don't know that it matters just a whole lot. The bigger picture is Jesus had a physical need and he asked his father to meet it. Now, believe it or not, that tells us something incredibly important about Jesus. He's human like you and me. He is God, unlike us, but he is human like you and me. I don't understand that. This side of heaven, I could not adequately explain to you the Trinity, both the divinity and the humanity of God, the Son. I I just, I couldn't do it. But I trust that it's true. And this is one of those places that shows us the humanity of Jesus. That he thirsts and asks his Father or asked for help with that thirst. I am thirsty. And that thirst was met. At least momentarily. Hebrews 2.17 tells us that Jesus was fully human in every way. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God. And that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Now if we understand what does a priest do. A priest represents the people to God. And the priest represents God to the people. But if you have a human as a priest, well, how can they go to God on your behalf? They're human like you. They're sinners like you. Why would God welcome and receive them as something much beyond where you're at? And that that human priest, how can they possibly fully understand God and God's message and bring that back to humanity? It was an imperfect system in an imperfect world, but God had a plan all along that there would be a priest that would be able to perfectly represent God to people and perfectly represent people to God. And that priest is Jesus. He embodied humanity like us, suffered, experienced even temptation, yet he did not sin like us. Well, unlike us, we, we do sin. So we have on the cross someone who fully understands what it's like to be human, but he can do something about it. Or we cannot. Jesus shows his humanity. And I think one thing that it teaches us is that as a human, he expressed his need. And you and I are human and we're going to have needs. And it's nice to know that we can go to one who understands what that's like. And in fact, when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, this is how he taught them to pray. Ask for your daily bread. 
Go to God and ask for what you need. He's your Father in heaven. If He knows it's not good for you, He won't give it to you. If He knows it's good for you, He'll give it to you. Let Him be in charge, but go and ask Him for what you need. Do you have a need today that you've been trying to figure out on your own? You're trying to plot and plan, come up with an idea. You're trying to work it out. You have a need that, that you're just worrying about and fretting about and you're, and you're just talking to everybody about how this, you got this big need and nothing's being done and you're just so upset about it. Or are you talking to God about it? Are you going to the one who not only understands what it's like to be a human and to be in need, but one who can do something about it? Go to God and express that need and trust Him to provide as only He can. Last sermon, John nineteen thirty, just a little bit further. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. Of course, that begs the question, doesn't it? What is finished? His life is finished. We know that. He's going to give up his spirit. He's going to die. But I don't think it's just simply the end of his life that is finished. There was an important mission That God had given Jesus in this world to die for the sins of humanity, you and I included. And here he is completing that mission. Now, we've talked about this. This was not something Jesus did lightly. We talked about his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. We talked about the the sweat coming off his brow that he was so upset that that his his blood became, became... coming out of his pores and, and just how, how, how terribly uh, upset he was about this horrible option before him to either do God's will and die on the cross or avoid God's will, abandon his mission so that he could, he could escape the suffering of the cross. But Jesus chose the mission of God. He chose the will of God. He completed his task. It is finished. There's two things I think about when I read that. One is that God gives you and I difficult tasks. For some of you, your difficult task is marriage. You want out. It's hard. Way harder than you ever thought it would be. It's parenting. You just want to check out. It's difficult. You're up against your own, uh, your own frailties all the time as a parent. Constantly reminded of your shortcomings. Maybe it's in your workplace or in your calling and ministry. There's all sorts of ways in which we can just say, you know what, I'm done. It might be life as a whole. I'm just done. I'm out. I'm checking out. I'm done. I'm thankful Jesus didn't do that. He felt the urge to give up on the mission the Father had for him, but he didn't. Maybe that can carry us through the mission God has for us, however hard it is. But there's a second thought here as well. And I think it's just as helpful. And it's to think about it like this. When Jesus completes his work on the cross, he is completing for you some important things. God has given you the responsibility to live perfectly. Be holy as I am holy. You got a whole ten commandments about it. I mean, my goodness, there's six hundred plus laws in the in the Old Testament telling you how to live your life. How are you doing with that? I break more than I follow, to be honest with you. Like 
Like God's perfection, I'm nowhere near that. And if I focus on what I have left to do, what I have left to figure out, if I, if I focus on the task at hand that, I, that I've got to live perfectly, I mean, it's just a recipe for hopelessness because I will, I will never measure up to God's perfection, ever. Even when I want to. Have you experienced that? Like when you really want to do good? When you really want to be good, you want to be the perfect spouse, you want to be the perfect parent, you want to be the perfect co-worker, you want to be the perfect boss, you want to do it perfectly, and yet you still can't do it, even when you really want to. What Jesus is doing on the cross, he's saying it's finished. The pressure is off of you to think you have to be perfect because Jesus was perfect for you. Pressure's off. So then what do we do? So I don't have to do anything? I'll do nothing? No, no, no. You just continue. God, what do you want me to do? I'm going to do that. What, what do you want me to do today? I'll do that. God, what do you want me to do today? I'll do that. And he's so good because he gives us a lot of that, all that we need to know, really, in the scriptures. We just need to go to the scriptures. We'll see. We'll get our marching orders. We do that. And, and when we fail, it's okay. I did not need to be perfect in that for God to love and accept me. Because Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. The holiness that God expected of me that I could not meet is finished in Jesus, not in me. And I can rest in that. But if we're honest with ourselves, how often do we not rest in that? We rest in other people's opinions of us. We rest in how well we can do and and what we can accomplish. And we rest in all these other things instead of resting in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Fundamentally, what we're saying is, Jesus, it's not finished. You're not enough. I've got to add to it. I've got to do more. But let Jesus' words be our last sermon to us. It is finished. He is enough. Let's pray. Father, it's, it's pretty amazing that Jesus could say these things under these circumstances. And I thank you that they are recorded for us, that we may consider these messages and what you have to speak to us. And it's a lot. I know we've talked about a whole lot, but I just pray that maybe one or two of these things would just stick in our minds and know that that's your word to us today. That's what you wanted us to hear today. And we would respond in kind. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.